0: This is the concluding episode of our study of the letter to the Hebrews. It's been a great joy to work through this magnificent letter of God's magnificent written word together with you. I hope you have benefited as I have, as we have read from God's word of the superiority of Jesus Christ, the superiority of his great high priesthood the superiority of his rule over the house of God as the Son of God, Uh, the superiority of his sacrifice which he himself offered up as our great high priest, the superiority of the new covenant, and the great assurance that we receive through faith in Christ. And in that assurance, we have um, the great encouragement to persevere Against all persecution, and the situation of the first century Hebrew Christians, uh, though sociologically different from ours, uh, we can relate to, because we ourselves, in our increasingly secular culture hostile to biblical Christianity, we may from time to time and more often and more often feel ourselves to be Uh, marginalized by the cultural elite, the cultural establishment. Um, But we have great encouragement to run the race with endurance, looking unto Jesus, who for the joy set before him, despised the shame and has offered up himself for us, was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the majesty. He has gone behind the curtain into the most holy place and is there uh, as our forerunner, our intercessor, our great high priest, our advocate, the anchor of our souls and the securer of our hope. It's a wonderful, wonderful letter. Now we come to the concluding paragraphs of it. Uh, let's, Let's offer a word of prayer to the Lord and seek his help. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the glorious gospel of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that in obedience to you, he offered up himself and by his own blood has made a new and living way into the most holy place so that with confidence we may draw near to the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy in our time of need. So we pray, our Father, that you will bless us now Grant to us the Holy Spirit, afresh and anew, and give us spiritual wisdom and insight and help us, Lord, not only to understand, but to live according to your word. Grant, O God, that we might be not merely hearers, but doers of your word as disciples of Jesus Christ, to the glory of his name, we pray. Amen. Well, gentlemen, we'll begin the reading today. Let me give it a run and start. Um, I know that we covered this last uh, week, but let me just, let's just, uh, let me get a running start here at verse seven. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. There ends the reading of the letter to the Hebrews. Well, back at verse 7. We hear the uh, admonition to remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. And I addressed that in last week's lesson, Uh, that um, the Church of Jesus Christ has designated leaders. Now, in different forms of church government, um, there are different uh, structures and there are different office holders. Uh, different offices of leadership, and I won't go into all the details of that. But you know, if if you're an Episcopalian, uh, you know the structure of bishops and arch, archbishops, bishops, um, rectors, vicars, etc. If you're a Baptist, you understand that's a much simpler uh, kind of uh, church government, uh, with the pastors serving as the elders usually, and then the lay leadership as deacons. Sometimes the lay leadership in a Baptist church is referred to uh, as the elders. Um, Presbyterians, of course, uh, have pastors who are uh, part of the governing body, the elders, And Presbyterians have servant leaders who are deacons. I told you I wasn't going to go into all that. (laughs) And look what I did. I just did it. But the point is, the point simply is to say that from the New Testament era, the church has had authorized and recognized leadership. And you can see that plainly when you read the letters of Paul uh, or Here, the letter to the Hebrews, if it wasn't written by Paul, somebody very close to Paul. But remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. As someone has written, the church is not a democracy. It's not a pure democracy. There is a structure. There's some form of hierarchy, uh, whether that be Roman Catholic, Episcopal, or even Baptist. and that's the way it's been since the New Testament. Now, this, this raises another question. I know it sounds as though I'm going off subject, but I'm not going off subject. Here's a verse, Hebrews 13, 7, which says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. We're going to pick up on this theme at verse 17. Verse 17, a direct command, Obey your leaders and submit to them. All right. So here's my point. It has to do with church membership. Doesn't matter, again, whether you're an Episcopalian or a Baptist or a non-denominational, uh, in a non-denominational church or a Methodist or a Presbyterian, you name it. There is authorized, recognized leadership. Now here's my point. In American evangelical Christianity, this notion, I would call it a virus. I would call it like a COVID-19 virus that has infected American Protestantism, uh, American, particularly evangelical type Protestantism. I identify with that. I don't use that in a pejorative term. I am an evangelical Protestant. But I'm a pastor in a particular denomination, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. But here's my point. The the virus that has infected so much of Evangelical Protestantism in general is this business of, I don't need to belong to a church. I don't need to belong to a church. I'm a Christian. I read my Bible. I have my daily devotions. Um, I visit this church, I visit that church. Or maybe I'm a a member of this church, I just don't go there. I like to visit around, church hoppers, etc. Let me ask you this question. How can a person who is not a member of a congregation, doesn't matter what denomination, as long as it's truly Christian, how can a person who claims to be a Christian but is not a member of a congregation, how can that person obey the New Testament command in Hebrews 13, verse 17? Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Who is that non-church member's leader. Who is keeping watch over that non-church member's soul? Nobody. Nobody. And by the way, the Bible doesn't grant, this verse doesn't grant anybody the, the, the liberty or the right to go around and say, oh, well, you know, I've chosen so-and-so to be my accountability partner. I've chosen so-and-so to be my mentor. That's not it. That's that's nothing but individualistic self-help. Now, I'm not opposed to people having a a particular accountability partner. That's good. Or a particular mentor. Could be very, very helpful. But an accountability partner is not your pastor. An accountability partner or a, um, a, a mentor is not somebody who has recognized authoritative leadership. And usually that recognized authoritative leadership takes place in in a plurality. That's why the the verb here, I mean, the noun here is in the plural, leaders. With an S on the end of it, leaders in verse 7. Leaders in verse 7. Obey your leaders. So you're not following just the lead of one particular guy. So in most churches, even those with a kind of um, hierarchical structure like in the Episcopal Roman Catholic, you still have, you know, you have the leaders of the diocese or whatever. And of course, in Presbyterians, it's in, in the Baptist church, there's going to be um, the leaders, whether they're called the de- the deacons or the elders, Methodist church is going to be some kind of council, together with the pastor. So, if you're not a member of a church, those of you who who aren't members of covenant, and you're listening to this, and you know you're regular in men's Bible study, but you know if you're not a member of a church, you need to you need to submit yourself to. a a congregation. That's just biblical. There's no such thing as an individual, isolated, do-it-yourself Christian in the New Testament. It's totally, absolutely foreign to the New Testament. Um, The the letters of Paul were written to congregations. And most of the time you read the second person pronoun in the New Testament, and it's Y-O-U, and it's we we say you. Well, most of the time that is more properly translated as y'all. And uh, we are individual believers in Christ as members of his body. We are individual believers in Christ as members of his body to which we are joined. That is his church. Okay, just a little minor digression, but I want to... I, I, I want to make the point there. Um, so we, we last week, we, we spoke about um, imitating those who are good imitators of Jesus Christ. No living man or woman is a perfect imitator of Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, we can learn from them and we ought to. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. And so a lot of the time last week we spent making the point that the bridge from verse 7 to verse 9 is verse 8. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. In between those two comes the unifying verse, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Spent a lot of time emphasizing the fact that whatever church you belong to, make sure it is presenting Jesus Christ as the Son of God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, He is the same Savior He was today as He was when He died on the cross. And His blood is effected to save. His priesthood is eternal. That's part of this. We've already covered the fact that Jesus' priesthood never ends because he's at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He has been raised from the dead. Um, He has to offer no more sacrifice because his sacrifice was once for all. You remember that? Once for all, once for all. We talked about that weeks ago. Once for all, forever. He's all you need, forever. He is able to save to the uttermost all who come to God through faith in him. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that is the reason that we must be focused on His Word written in Scripture and not be led away by new, diverse, strange, and new teachings. And we have to go to Him in faith. We have to be willing to to suffer reproach for Him and uh, to suffer outside the gate, outside the cultural establishment, outside the cultural elite, outside acceptance um, by the powerful in crowd. We have to go outside the gate. We have to be willing to bear that kind of scorn and ridicule and reproach in order to be covered by the blood of Jesus because it was outside the gate that he suffered to sanctify the people through his own blood. There it is at verse 12. And therefore, let us go to him and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city. And ultimately, this world is not going to last forever and nor is it going to bring us eternal happiness if we are seeking eternal happiness we must look heavenward through the cross of Christ and as he did so we must also despise the shame and endure the suffering with him so that we might be glorified together with him We don't offer up a sacrifice because he has offered up his, that is a blood sacrifice. We don't offer up animal sacrifices as the Old Testament Levitical priests did. But we offer up the sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, singing praise, offering prayers, bearing witness to him in public. These are our living sacrifices. As Paul wrote to the Romans 12, one, I appeal to you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies, that includes your mouth and your tongue as a living sacrifice to God. And verse 16, do not neglect to do good. That is in the way of Jesus in accordance with God's word and God's law, do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So, what are the sacrifices that Christians offer? Sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving with their lips and sacrifices of doing good with their hands and feet, as it were, and sacrifices um, of sharing what we have with generosity toward those in need. These are the sacrifices pleasing to God. Now we come to verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. So you see, verse 7 looks back and says, remember your leaders. Remember those who taught you the Word of God and, and learn from them. And to the degree that they were imitators of Christ, you imitate them. Now, in the present, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. They are overseers of your souls. They are shepherds. This is the idea. So you're in a church and you have your pastors, priests. Then you have others, as in the Presbyterian church, men we call ruling elders who are recognized as men who are following the Lord and beyond reproach. Uh, upright and with spiritual wisdom and maturity. They are leaders, just as are the pastors, and they are responsible for keeping watch over the souls. That's the reason that at Covenant we uh, make such a point to emphasize the, the pastoral leadership of the lay ruling elders, the pastoral shepherding oversight. That's the reason we have Neighborhood flocks um, with elders assigned to each flock to, to keep watch over the sheep, and to help take care of the sheep, and to help go find the lost sheep and the straying sheep and to exercise discipline over those who have strayed from the way of the Lord. And we will have to give an account. That's a very um Uh, gut-checking verse. On the one hand, the congregation in general is commanded to obey your leaders and and submit to them. Now think about that. Think about that verse in the American church, even in in the American congregation. How many congregational members do you think these days really consider their obligation under God to obey their church leaders, and submit to them. I'd I'd love to see the look on your face right now. How many people in your congregation, how many people do you think actually believe or know that they are obligated by the Word of God to obey and to submit to their church leaders. For a lot of people, that would be a foreign concept. To a lot of people, that would be a foreign concept. But in our denomination, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, we actually have that as part of our membership vows. Do you acknowledge um, and receive the government do you submit to, do you submit to the government and discipline of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church and to the spiritual oversight of this church session? Our elders. Do you submit to the government and discipline of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church and to the spiritual oversight of this church session? So that you see then... When, when people are causing disruption in the church or when they are committing great, grievous, grievous, blatant sin, that's usually a public knowledge and elders go to them and confront them and speak the truth in love. And they say, well, you can't, you can't tell me what to do. You can't pry into my business. Or, you know, how about this one? Well, it's my wedding. I'll do what I you know, I can do whatever I want to. I'm paying for this wedding. You know, if I want this kind of music, we're gonna have this kind of music. No well, you can have whatever kind of music you want to have somewhere else, but you're not gonna have it in this sanctuary. You can do whatever you want to do at a wedding you pay for at some other venue, but that's not what happens inside this sanctuary. Now we don't have that kind of problem at Covenant Presbyterian Church, but it's out there, you know. And if it weren't for the fact that our elders understand that, and and that we have policies and procedures, you know, everything was in place. Well, then, you know, if you're in a if you're in a, if you're in a church with no leadership, then you're in the midst of chaos and division. Right? You know this if you're in a church with no authorized, respected leadership with authority, with oversight in accordance with the word of God, then you're in the middle of some chaotic disaster waiting to happen and result into a division of the, of the church or a splintering of the church. All right. Okay. Onward. Um, The leaders though are not to do that. And this is, this is, Throughout the Bible, the New Testament, uh, 1 Peter 5 speaks of the same thing. Leaders uh, are, Christian leaders are never to be overbearing, domineering, um, throwing their weight around, insensitive to the needs of their people. We have to do this in a way that honors Christ, follows his example, and is in accordance with his word and 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 cares for people and we have to remember that we're going to give an account to the chief shepherd Jesus Christ so verse uh 17 continues it says let them let the leaders give an account with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you i think the image here is actually to the last judgment you know we we, those of us who are leaders of the church, even late and lay leaders, we give an account for our leadership of the church, our caregiving of the church and um, and we'll be judged according to that work and if we you know we appear before the Lord and say, "Man, alive, those people were just terrible. they were recalcitrant, rebellious, obstinate you know didn't care a thing in the world about bible study you know if we had to if we had to give a report like that the scripture saying that ain't that's not going to be good that's not going to be a good reflection on on you church members that's not going to be to your advantage so anyway with a view toward giving an account to the lord we churchly leaders want to do that joyfully and thankfully and uh, you want to be the kind of congregation and church member about whom a good report is going to be given because that's that's what's to your advantage. All right. Very interesting passage. Verse 18. Pray for us for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act in honorably in all things. And um, that I think is a, a request for prayer because as... as the author and those with him, probably, perhaps Paul and those with him, you know, they were continually slandered. Um, they were ridiculed. They were put down. Pray for us. You know, pray for us to hold steady for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. And by the way, I'll just make a cultural moment application. Have y'all, have y'all been in touch with, have you... Are you aware of the persecution, the, the slander, the malicious slander that's been hurled against Franklin Graham and his organization, Samaritan's Purse? Uh, Samaritan's Purse went to New York City, set up a transportable hospital in Central Park. And, um, you know, the, to to serve anybody and everybody, to to relieve uh Pressure off of the Mount Sinai Hospital. Are you aware of that? You need to get the Al Moler app. Al Moler, M-O-H-L-E-R, and download and and uh, or maybe you could Google Good Samaritan's purse in New York City. Uh, Samaritan's purse. Sorry, Samaritan's purse in New York City, and just get the the recent articles about the way in which they have been maliciously slandered. Um. But that's the culture in which we live now. But the point is, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. So as Christians, this could apply to you. It it Certainly uh, anybody that's seeking to have a public witness for Christ, pray for us, pray for me, pray for your pastor. Pray for Jonathan and me if you're a member of Covenant. If you're a member of some other church, pray for your pastor. Pray for them. Because they're seeking to serve the Lord. They're seeking to act honorably in all things. They're seeking to make the right decisions. And, you know, they're they're open for pot shots and criticism and possible slander and false witness. Pray for them. And pray for Jonathan and me um we don't get everything right but i hope that 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 we can say that we have a clear conscience we have a clear conscience we're trying to do that which is pleasing to the lord according to his revealed word in scripture and desiring to act honorably in all things you know we're not we're not we're not trying to cheat people out of anything we're not trying to manipulate people we're not you know So pray for your leaders, because Satan will move in any way he can uh, to discourage honorable leadership, to trip us up, um, to slander us publicly, etc. Verse 19, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. An indication that um, the author, if not the Apostle Paul, was someone else who was in prison and um, he was unjustly imprisoned. He had a clear conscience and he always desired to act honorably, but it landed him in prison. And that's, I think, what that means, that their prayers would restore him the sooner. Now we come to the benediction, beautiful benediction. Benediction uh, means literally good word, word of blessing, good word. It's usually given at the end of a sermon or a worship service. Bene means good, beneficial. Where we get the word beneficial, bene diction, speech. Right, so here's the blessing. Now may the God of Peace, Who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, don't read through that too quickly. Let's dig into that just a little bit. Now may the God of peace. Now may the God of Hebrew shalom. Uh, Peace, sometimes in American vocabulary, uh, is a very soft kind of a word, you know, peace of mind. um, You know, peace. You're in a fishing boat all by yourself on the water. That's a good thing. But, there's just so much more to the Hebrew concept of peace than merely, you know, being alone on the deer stand. I mean, that that's a good place. You experience some peace, um, but the peace of God is the all-encompassing well-being of His presence in his kingdom. It's the all goodness. It's it's not just an absence of conflict. It's not just, certainly not the absence of war. It's not the absence of noise. It's not just the absence of stress. We should think of it in a very, very positive sense, a, a powerful sense the sense that all is well because we are in the presence of the almighty creator of heaven and earth who is all good, almighty, all good, all enveloping, all encompassing peace which promotes and supports life in all of its fullness and a great sense of well-being and nothing could go wrong. Think of it in a very, 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 very powerful sense. Being right in the center of God's presence. Now may the God of peace. I mean, think about the Lord Jesus in the boat with the disciples. They're scared to death. The waves are raging. The winds are blowing. The boat is sinking. He's asleep. He's asleep. Right? That's that's the God of peace. He wakes up. What does he say? Peace. Be still. He speaks to the wind. He speaks to the waves. And everything becomes completely calm. Who's in control? Who is sovereign? Yeah, that's the peace of God. That's that's what this blessing upon you is calling for. That the one who speaks to the ocean and calms the waves might completely envelop your life. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, um, this is one of the f- few very direct references to the resurrection of Jesus. Of course, the resurrection of jesus is is understood and it 's implied and um, throughout the letter. but here is a direct reference: the God of peace who brought again from the dead our lord jesus he 's the God of peace well he 's overcome all the powers of sin, death, darkness, evil you see he brought He, he brought Jesus back from the dead so here 's that vision of heaven again. Victory over death. It proves that he is the peace, he, the, the, the king of peace, the absolute king of peace. There's no threat to his kingship. There's, he will never be dethroned. He will never be conquered because he's conquered and destroyed the last enemy, which is death itself. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, We've, we've been focusing on Jesus, the great high priest, now he's, and the, great, the, the greater uh, son over the house, and now he's the great shepherd. The great shepherd. And that takes you back, of course, to John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Here he is, the great shepherd of the sheep who died but was raised from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant. Now, that's really interesting because it as reference, it refers to, of course, Jesus's blood, his death on the cross. But the eternal covenant was the covenant, um, first of all, which was made between God the Father and God the Son in eternity past. We refer to that in systematic theology as the covenant of redemption. Before the beginning of time, God the Father and God the Son entered into this covenant by which the Father would offer up the Son incarnate and the Son would willingly take on human flesh and blood and willingly, in obedience to His Father, um, offer up His life. This was the eternal covenant between God the Father, God the Son, for the redemption of sinners so that God would forever have a people redeemed unto himself by his blood. And the Lord Jesus Christ would be the, as it were, the firstborn of many brothers, firstborn from the dead, the firstborn of many brothers. So that the the love between the father and the son would be shared. It would overflow upon an incalculable multitude, a multitude without number um, that cannot be numbered. Um, Although the number is known to God, of course this is the eternal covenant but it's it's also with reference to what we've heard from the letter to the hebrews about the new covenant the new covenant in christ's blood which which is eternal um it it, it will never be exhausted it will never uh expire there's no end date to it he remains a priest forever at the right hand of god Um, think about all that we we heard about the great high priesthood and the shedding of His blood and He's able to save to the uttermost all who come to Him, the eternal priesthood. He died once, He never will die again. So, but this is the the blood of the new covenant, the blood of the, the covenant of redemption in eternity past, which was ratified, was made visible as it were on the cross of Christ a new covenant which has no end. So he was raised from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant, meaning that his the shedding of his blood on the cross was effective. It was satisfactory. That is, it satisfied the justice of God against sin. It appeased the wrath of God against sin. It brought justification of the uh, elect sinners. Um, it, it was totally effective um, for his people, the sinners, to be redeemed by his grace. And therefore, death had no hold on him. The resurrection of Jesus is the vindication of his sacrifice. The resurrection of Jesus proves that his death on the cross was sufficient and was satisfactory Um, to atone for the sins of his people. And therefore, death, sin and death had no hold on him. So he rose victorious. He rose uh, bringing justification, pardon, cleansing for all who believe in him. So, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, who laid down his life for the sheep, was raised from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant. This is the the covenant which was sealed in his blood and in which we have both his death and his resurrection. May he equip you with everything good. This is sanctification now. The fact that Christ was raised from the dead shows us our justification by faith alone in Him alone, and now our sanctification. May He equip you with everything good that you may do His will, that you may do His will, just as Christ did His will. Working in us, working in you, that which is pleasing in His sight. So we have new lives. Our sins have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. We've been raised up with him. We have a new life. We are justified. We've been made right with God through our union of faith with Jesus Christ. And now we're being equipped and now we're being sanctified to serve him and to do that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, not on our own, but in our union with Christ. Because our our sanctification is, Our sanctification and the doing of God's will and living a life pleasing to God can be done only, only, only in our continuing union with Jesus Christ. Only in our continuing union. We're still dependent upon him. Don't think about the work of Christ as something that is merely uh, past and in the past. I mean, it is in the past, of course. And it is a finished work upon which we trust. But our union with Christ is a daily union, a daily abiding in him, a daily dependence upon him, a daily looking unto him, a daily um, receiving of his grace and strength by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing pleasing to God. We have to do it in Him, through Him, by Him, through the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. And so it's in union with Him that we gain strength to do God's will. It's in union with Christ that we receive wisdom, to understand the things of God in Scripture and even have the desire, not only the ability to to do things that are pleasing to God, but have the desire. It's only in union with Christ. So don't think of of your relationship with Christ as something that's stuck in the past. His work is, is rooted in history. His work is a finished work. And yet it's a finished work upon which we are daily dependent in our union with Christ through faith in the communion of the Holy Spirit. And that's why it said that you may do his will working in us, that is God working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. As we grow in greater and greater conformity to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's wonderful stuff, but this is a living spiritual life. Uh, This is not head theology. We have to know some stuff. I hope you've learned some stuff in the study of Hebrews. But if it doesn't go from our heads to our heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, it does us no good. If it doesn't go from our heads to our heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, it does us no good. So, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And now, very quick, uh, concluding post-word and final greetings. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my written word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. So there's the word exhortation, which could also be called a sermon, but he wrote it right? It's written. It's a written sermon. It's a written exhortation. And did you get this? It's brief. Now, I don't know how long it would take to preach this from chapter one, verse one, all the way to chapter 13, verse 25. Maybe I ought to do that. Just read right through it as though I'm preaching the sermon. And you could do that. Read it out loud. Read it out loud from the beginning to the end. Time it. Read it as though, you know, you're speaking it to someone, you know, with inflection of voice and pauses and all that kind of stuff. Time it out. And then, by the way, the Word of God calls it brief. That's a brief sermon. Compare it to your past, the length of your pastor's sermons. Let's just see how we do. Okay? This is brief. Ha! The 13 chapters. This is a brief exhortation. Just wanted you to note that. Uh, He goes on to say, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders. There you go. The assumption, the working assumption, is that these are people in a congregation, in some way identified. They are identified with a group of people. They are, if you will please, on the membership roll. You know, they may not keep a membership role like like your churches, our church keeps a membership role, but this is evidence. New Testament, before AD 70, that churches were identifiable, and people in churches were identifiable, and churches with people in them were identifiable by their leaders, and in members were identified with their leaders. So, I mean, there it is. It's a little verse but you gotta read. You gotta see it right there. Greet your leaders and all the saints, all the believers. In other words, hey, say hey to say hey to your pastors and your elders and your deacons for me and and all the other members of your congregation. I love them. I miss them. Tell everybody, hey. Okay, you get it. This isn't written to an isolated individual. If you're a Christian, you are not to be an isolated individual. You're to be identified with a body of believers, with identified, authorized, respected, responsible leaders. Okay? Get the word out, please. My goodness, get the word out. All right. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. this causes some scholars to think that the letter, uh, the letter may have been written from Rome or may have been written to Rome or somewhere else where people had come from Rome. Uh, anyway, uh, we don't know the, all the historical deals or sociological uh, identities of that. You can read about that in your study Bible. Grace be with all of you. So grace be with all of you, my brothers and my covenanters and senior saints, anybody who might be listening to this. Grace, that is the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, be with you all. And uh, uh, the men of Wednesday morning Bible study, I'll be getting back to you about future plans. But this concludes our uh, academic year. It's been a great, great joy to be with you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your commitment um and do me a favor if you ha if you hung in here and finished these and listened to these audios and benefited just send me an email and let me know okay stay in touch god bless bye bye